A word of caution. This episode contains descriptions of hazing activities and deaths that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. A college junior heads into the final night of pledging activities, consumes a large amount of alcohol, and is found dead the next morning. A 19-year-old in South Carolina goes on a pre-dawn run as part of his pledging activities and has an accidental fall into a lake. Did his death get swept under the rug at a major university? A student at a private university in North Carolina dies in an off-campus apartment, and his mother is determined to find out the real story about what happened the night he died. And finally, four young women pledging a sorority at a North Carolina university drive off for an early morning salon appointment, and two of them are killed when the driver falls asleep at the wheel and crashes their car. Are there deaths related to sleep deprivation that occurred during pledging activities? There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 74, Deaths Related to College Fraternities and Sororities. Hazing is defined as humiliating or playing rough practical jokes on a person for the purpose of initiating that individual into a selective organization. The practice is prohibited at most colleges and universities. According to the website StopHazing.org, there are three components that define hazing. It occurs in a group context. Humiliating, degrading, or endangering behavior is used. And finally, it happens regardless of an individual's willingness to participate. Today, we're going to talk about hazing as it pertains to college fraternities and sororities. StopHazing.org shares that policy is a core component of comprehensive violence prevention, hazing included. To effectively prevent hazing, an evidence-based approach is necessary, and that also includes enacting and upholding clear policies that prohibit hazing. The Stop Campus Hazing Act would improve hazing reporting and prevention on college campuses. This bipartisan, evidence-informed legislation is supported by national campus safety experts, national fraternity and sorority trade associations, and the parents of hazing victims. You can read more about the Stop Campus Hazing Act and the corresponding bills and resolutions at StopHazing.org. The first case I want to talk about is that of Lori Berry Ballou, a Johnsonville resident who passed away on January 25, 1980. Berry was a junior at the University of South Carolina who was pledging the Sigma Nu fraternity. According to an article that ran in the Columbia Record on May 12, 1982, Barry had told his mother over the phone the day before he died that he was heading into his final night as a pledge after what is known as Hell Week. He told a hairstylist on that same day that he was excited about the fraternity's upcoming party. She said, He told me it was a big night, 
When I asked him what he meant, he told me that night it would be decided if he would get into the fraternity. He said, all I know is that we have to drink until we pass out. Here's what is known about the night Barry died, according to an inquest that was held. Barry was escorted alone into a room, as other pledges had done earlier in the evening. He was offered a ritualistic cup of truth containing a mixture of liquor, beer, and wine. Fraternity members present said Barry drank the concoction of his own free will. After he and the other pledges were told to run through a neighboring fraternity's dorm in their underwear, other physical activities in the Sigma Nu lounge followed. At one point during the night, several fraternity members said they noticed Barry's skin had turned a bluish tint. They sat him up on the couch, where he lay until his normal skin tone returned. One fraternity member did say he was concerned enough to suggest the group take Barry to the school infirmary, but he was overruled by others who said they thought Barry would be embarrassed if they did so. There were a few different pledges who passed out that night around 12.30 a.m. when another member covered them with blankets. He said he made sure Barry was lying on his stomach in case he vomited. The next morning, Sigma Nu fraternity members discovered Barry's lifeless body face down on the sofa. A fraternity member told police when he turned Barry over, he could see vomit spread on the young man's face, mouth, and nostrils. The Richland County coroner ruled that Barry died of strangulation. While unconscious, he had choked on his own vomit. The coroner also said that the blood alcohol level in Barry's body was high enough to have been potentially fatal. A Richland County coroner's jury ruled Barry's death an unfortunate accident. The 1982 article reported that the Interfraternity Council, which was comprised of several representatives from each fraternity, unanimously endorsed legislation pending before the South Carolina House and Senate that would have made penalties for hazing more severe. The concurrent bill would have given statewide uniformity to penalties for hazing practices. That would have made it possible for hazing victims to sue individuals responsible for initiation acts which resulted in bodily injury. The General Assembly, however, failed to pass any anti-hazing bills as a result. In June of 1983, Barry's parents sued the University of South Carolina and the Sigma Nu fraternity for $3 million. The suit stated that during the course of the initiation ceremony, Barry Ballou was forced by harassment and psychological manipulation to consume enormous quantities of alcoholic beverages and then pushed to the limits of his physical endurance by a series of vigorous exercises. The suit charged that Sigma Nu Fraternity Corporation, its executive director Maurice Littlefield, and fraternity officers David Krigler and John Stelling, created and allowed dangerous and unlawful activities and hazing to be conducted while failing to adequately regulate the pledging process. It also charged that the university, President James B. Holderman and James B. Campbell, Vice President for Student Affairs, failed to provide proper supervision, care, and custody of students at USC and failed to properly supervise and regulate the activities of fraternities, in particular, Sigma Nu. On December 14, 1984, 
The state newspaper in Columbia reported that a jury awarded Barry Ballou's parents $200,000 in actual damages and $50,000 in punitive damages against the Lexington, Kentucky-based fraternity Sigma Nu. The Ballous had dropped the part of the suit naming the University of South Carolina after USC officials promised to conduct an extensive campaign on the hazards of drinking too much. During the course of the investigation, the lawyer who represented Barry's parents said that 19 pledges had participated in the Hell Night Party the night before they were to become full-fledged members of the fraternity. Four of the pledges had passed out due to alcoholic consumption. Sigma Nu had also violated university regulations by bringing hard liquor into the on-campus fraternity house. At the conclusion of the civil court trial, Ray Ballou, Barry's father, said, I think this is going to save someone's life. Next, I want to talk about Tucker Hips. 19-year-old Clemson University student and political science major Tucker Hips was pledging at Sigma Phi Epsilon when he died in what his parents suspected was an accident related to fraternity hazing. An autopsy revealed that Tucker had died of a head injury consistent with having fallen from a bridge onto rocks into the shallow water of Lake Hartwell in South Carolina. An article that ran in the Greenville News on September 23, 2014, said that fraternity members told investigators they were running together when Tucker started having some issues and fell behind as they crossed a bridge where his body was later found in the water. They said they ran ahead, and when they got to breakfast, he wasn't there. And when they went to check on him, they couldn't find him. About 20 members of Sigma Phi Epsilon were interviewed, and at the time, the sheriff's office stated they didn't believe hazing was involved in Tucker's death. In August 2015, CNN ran an article titled New Clues in Death of Clemson Fraternity Pledge Tucker Hips. It revealed a new witness had come forward to provide more information on what happened the morning Tucker died. His family had filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the university, seeking at least $25 million from the school, the fraternity, and the student defendants. The CNN article revealed that Sigma Phi Epsilon pledges were told to participate in a pre-dawn run and that they were told to wear dark clothes so they wouldn't be spotted. Tucker was texted by a fraternity brother and told to bring breakfast from McDonald's for 30 people. When he showed up to the run without the breakfast, there was a confrontation. According to this witness, three fraternity members, Samuel Carney, Thomas Carter King, and Campbell T. Starr, forced Tucker to get up onto the narrow railing along the bridge and walk some distance of the bridge to the top of the railing. Sam Carney was the son of a U.S. House rep from Delaware, who later became the state's governor. Tucker slipped from the railing, caught the railing under his arms, and tried to pull himself up unassisted, and then fell headfirst into the water below. Thomas King allegedly shined his cell phone flashlight down into the waters of Lake Hartwell, but no one tried to rescue Tucker. They waited three hours to go looking for him, and didn't alert campus police until seven hours later. In response to the allegations by this unnamed witness, the Oconee County solicitor Chrissy Adams told CNN that there were multiple issues with this witness's account of Tucker's death 
and that there would be no criminal charges resulting from those witness statements. Tucker Hips was an only child, and his mom told CNN he was always looking for ways to be around others. He played football in high school and worked as a camp counselor in the summertime. He thought pledging a fraternity would make him part of a lifelong brotherhood. He had chosen Sig Epp because he wanted to go into law school after graduation and thought the fraternity might help him with internships and networking. The Clemson chapter of Sigma Phi Epsilon was suspended for five years in February 2015, but the university did not cite Tucker Hibbs' death in announcing that action. In August of 2017, the Anderson Independent Mail reported that Clemson University had agreed to pay Tucker Hibbs' family $250,000, and the Sigma Phi Epsilon fraternity had to educate others about what happened to him. Clemson University also had to establish a $50,000 endowment to be used for a student from Palmetto Boys State to attend Clemson University. Tucker had been a counselor there in the summertime. The university also stated it would dedicate a pew in Tucker Hibbs' name in the Cadden Chapel on campus, which was named for a Clemson student killed in a car crash in 2015. They were also required to issue a news release about its commitment to carefully monitoring campus fraternities and indicated that Tucker's family supported those efforts. The university released a statement that said in part, before Tucker's death, Clemson had begun instituting changes to its policies regarding its Greek system to improve the experience for our students. After Tucker's death, the university accelerated its efforts and made additional substantial changes to its Greek system, including increasing new member education on hazing alcohol, sexual misconduct, academic success, and more, adding new staff members to implement leadership and health wellness programming, and adding fraternity and sorority life certified peer educators to implement peer-led programs. The Independent Mail also reported that there was a separate settlement between Cindy and Gary Hips and the SIGAP fraternity and student members. The details of the settlement were confidential. We are so grateful to the community that has loved Tucker throughout this long process, even though most of you never knew him, Cindy and Gary Hips said in their statement at the time. We started this process for truth, and with that truth, we wanted to make change. We are seeing positive changes occurring, and we are hopeful that not one other family will ever have to go through what we have gone through. We hope earnestly that Tucker's legacy will be one of change to the culture of Greek organizations that they might provide true leadership and growth for young people. On September 23, 2021, Tucker's parents held a press conference on the anniversary of their son's death. The state newspaper in Columbia covered the event. Tucker's parents were joined by a man named Daniel Catullo, a documentary filmmaker who shared Tucker's story in a film about fraternities, hazing, and the code of silence that surrounds their activities. At the time of Tucker's death, Daniel Catullo was a member of Sigma Phi Epsilon. He told reporters that there were 29 fraternity members there the day of Tucker's accident, and all 60 members of the fraternity knew what happened. But still, no one would speak up. The Crime Stoppers of Oconee County is offering a $100,000 reward for information about the death of Tucker Hips. 
the Greenville News announced in February of 2021 that the North American Interfraternity Conference and the Anti-Hazing Coalition pledged an additional $20,000, along with other organizations, and the initial $50,000 from Crime Stoppers, bringing the overall total to $100,000. Anyone with information is asked to call the Oconee County Sheriff's Office Criminal Investigations Bureau at 864-718-1052. Cindy and Gary Hips helped form the Tucker Hips Transparency Act in 2016, which requires four-year public institutions in South Carolina, with the exception of the Medical University of South Carolina and the Citadel, to publicly maintain reports of actual findings of misconduct by fraternity and sorority organizations. Let's take a break for a word from our sponsors. I'd like to talk about our newest sponsor, Terabusi Creek. The company was founded in 2014 when creator Stephanie went on a journey to improve the health of her own skin. The product line features 100% plant-based products made with vegan ingredients and ethically sourced oils and butters. In their wide range of skincare and self-care products, there's a little something to be found for every person on your holiday gift list. With a wide range of bar soaps, sugar scrubs, lotions, and bath bombs in a multitude of scents, you can be sure to mix and match various bath and body products for many different tastes and preferences. If home fragrances are more up your alley, Terabusi Creek's uniquely scented soy candles, wax melts, and refresher sprays will create an inviting and homey vibe for the upcoming cooler weather. All products feature creative colors and textures inspired by Stephanie's love of nature and are non-toxic and perfect for sensitive skin. This winter, I'm eyeing the Cranberry Marmalade Sugar Scrub and coordinating Cranberry Balsam Lotion. Check out our product giveaway partnership on Instagram and Facebook this week. To learn more about Terabusi Creek's products, visit terabusicreek.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. True crime is more popular than ever thanks to documentaries, podcasts, and media outlets that produce gripping crime stories. This is great news for writers wanting to explore this market. Crime narratives are not only compelling for consumers, they can also help find justice for victims, their families, and the community. In fiction, using true crime elements and journalistic techniques can help deepen the storyline and add authenticity to characters and plot. Do you enjoy reading and consuming true crime content and would love to find a way to write and publish your own? In a webinar I'll be teaching through WOW Women on Writing next spring, I'll share how to find story ideas, how you can use true crime elements in nonfiction and fiction, where to pitch your true crime work, and more. You also have an opportunity to send an article, outline, or project pitch to me for feedback. The webinar will take place on March 14, 2024, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and will be recorded for those who can't attend in person. The cost is $45, and there are a limited number of spots, so register today at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the Classes tab. On March 26, 2012, 22-year-old Robert Tipton was a junior at High Point University in North Carolina when he was found deceased in an off-campus apartment. He was pledging Delta Sigma Phi fraternity and serving as the pledge class president, meaning he was responsible for seeing that his fellow pledges received and followed the instructions and orders given by the pledge educator and fraternity brothers. Michael Quibane, the son of High Point University President Nito Quibane, was the pledge educator. 
High Point University is a private four-year university that caters to wealthy students and families. When Nito Quibane took over as president in 2005, he quickly began working to transform the university from what some considered a sleepy Methodist institution to a lavish campus experience, complete with outdoor hot tubs and dorm rooms with large screen televisions. He makes more than $2 million a year in his role as president and has raised and donated tens and millions of dollars to the city of High Point. In 2010, the police department named him an honorary colonel. Robert Tipton's mother, Deborah, is a native of Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and heiress to an Arkansas agricultural fortune. She was also in the sorority Kappa Alpha Theta in the 1970s at Vanderbilt University. She lives in Memphis, Tennessee now, and has spent the last several years crusading for answers in what she considers the suspicious death of her son. She has spent more than a million dollars of her own money in order to fund her own investigation. His mother described Robert Tipton as a high school track star with an easygoing personality. He loved hunting at his family's lodge in Arkansas. In the days before his death, Robert texted his mother a series of messages that made her grow increasingly concerned. They said things like, getting hazed bad now and need Xanax. I didn't even sleep last night and was shaking. Or, I can't trust anyone right now. According to a Wire article that ran in several different newspapers on September 30, 2018, when the Tipton family investigative team finally received the full police report four years after Robert's death, the autopsy photos showed purple bruises all around the young man's face, around his neck, legs, buttocks, and there was also a jagged gash on his head. A police detective had made notes at the scene of the investigation that said things like, bruises? How and where did they come from? Talk to frat brothers. The department allegedly never interviewed anyone from the fraternity, as High Point University insisted upon a subpoena first. Deborah Tipton's private investigators interviewed pledges from Delta Sigma Phi as part of their lawsuit preparation. These pledges admitted things like they were told to drink whiskey until they vomited into a kiddie pool. One member said the brothers put a hood over his head and beat him, leaving him with residual pain in his right shin. They also said at the end of Hell Week, the older members would blindfold each pledge and ask him to lie in a coffin packed with ice. The Saturday before Robert died, Delta Sig hosted a party, and Robert had used $1,000 of his own money to make it a success. Liquor and drugs were present. His closest friend at the time, Marshall Jefferson, a Delta Sig senior, said Robert was very inebriated at the party and had begun kicking out uninvited guests. Marshall said Robert was taking the anti-anxiety medication, Clonopin. The next night, Robert visited Marshall's off-campus apartment and took the painkiller oxymorphone, crushing it up and snorting it like cocaine, along with drinking alcohol. In the early morning hours of Monday morning, Robert sent a group text to the fraternity members apologizing to them for losing their respect. Marshall later told police he and his roommate talked Robert into sleeping on the floor of their apartment rather than have him drive back to his dorm intoxicated. He said when he left for class around 9 a.m., Robert was asleep on his back, snoring. When he returned about an hour later, Robert had white foam on the corners of his mouth. Marshall then called 911. 
The North Carolina medical examiner found no traces of alcohol in Robert's system at the autopsy. Had Marshall been lying about his friend being drunk? Marshall later admitted to lying about who was really in the apartment the night before Robert died. He initially said his roommate was there, but later admitted this roommate had spent the night elsewhere. Another student at the university told a private investigator that he had been at Marshall's apartment with a sorority member until about 4 a.m. Marshall had suggested that Robert had overdosed on oxymorphone. A medical examiner Deborah Tipton hired from Fulton County, Georgia, looked at the report and said this was not the cause of death. She pointed to the bruises on Robert's body and said Robert's brain had not been examined closely enough to determine whether or not he'd had a significant brain injury. Officially, the university strongly rejected Deborah Tipton's accusations. A judge removed the university from the wrongful death lawsuit the Tipton family filed. According to the Wire article, the court ruled that, under the law, the school and its administrators did not have a duty to protect Robert, a decision that was upheld on appeal. Interviews with former security officers at High Point University indicated that Michael Quibain had been involved in a fight with another student that campus officials had to break up. They were told by the university's director of security that any incidents involving Michael needed to be turned over to him directly. One former security officer said he resigned in the wake of how the university handled Robert Tipton's case. Michael Quibain admitted that he had taken Robert's phone from Marshall Jefferson's apartment and deleted messages and photos. He said he did this because he didn't want Robert's family to read about his drug use in the messages. He also told private investigators he was worried about the fraternity getting into trouble. Michael had Robert's phone in his possession, and it was turned over to Robert's family and never given to the police. At Robert's memorial service at his home in Memphis, a family friend found Michael and another student in Robert's room signing into his laptop. Michael said he had searched the laptop for documents related to Delta Sig and deleted them, along with emails about the pledge test. A former military investigator hired by Deborah Tipton shared all the information they had gathered with the police, local prosecutors, and officers from the State Bureau of Investigation. Walt Jones, the supervising assistant district attorney for High Point, said there was no evidence of homicide or reason to reopen the case. The wrongful death lawsuit stated it believes Robert was called to Marshall Jefferson's house the night before he died because he had disclosed fraternity secrets to another sorority member, who was also the girlfriend of a Delta Sig member. He was assaulted by members of the fraternity, possibly under orders by Michael Quibain, giving him a head injury that led to his death. The students at the apartment denied the allegations. A judge in the wrongful death lawsuit removed the national fraternity and the university. The only people still listed on the lawsuit are the two fraternity members listed as defendants. A spokeswoman for the university said, We continue to be saddened by the loss of Robert Tipton, whose tragic death at an unaffiliated off-campus housing apartment complex six years ago was ruled a drug overdose by the state medical examiner. If you go to the website justiceforrobertipton.com, you'll see more details about this case and that there's currently a $100,000 reward being offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for Robert's death. 
And finally, I'd like to talk about a case tied to a sorority at Eastern Carolina University. And I found it very interesting that it had a much different outcome than these other cases. On November 20th, 2010, a group of young women riding in a car on the way to an early morning hair appointment crashed, resulting in the deaths of 20-year-old Victoria Carter of Raleigh and Brianna Gaither, age 20, of Kernersville. A third passenger, 19-year-old Taylor King of Greenville, was injured. 21-year-old Camille Arrington of Nashville was charged with two counts of misdemeanor death by vehicle. The four women were members of the pledge class for Delta Sigma Theta at East Carolina University. Investigators said they believed Camille fell asleep at the wheel while driving, crashing the car into a tree. She pled guilty of two counts of misdemeanor death by motor vehicle. She was ordered to serve one year of supervised probation and perform 100 hours of community service. In 2012, the mother of Victoria Carter, Bernadette Carter, filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Delta Sigma Theta at East Carolina University. According to reports by news station WRAL, the lawsuit alleged that the sorority hazed the pledges in multiple ways, including depriving them of sleep. The hazing violated ECU policies, but sorority officials dismissed any complaints university officials received, the lawsuit claimed. Camille Arrington was so exhausted by sleep deprivation that she fell asleep at the wheel. The sorority allegedly tried to cover up the evidence of hazing by deleting emails, text message records, and other documents threatening pledges. I was not able to find out the official outcome of this lawsuit, but I did see a mention in a 2017 op-ed piece on Medium.com that it had been quietly settled. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com, Renee Robertson. Thank you so much for those who have already supported me through this platform. Be sure to tune in next week when we'll be featuring an interview with Max Marshall, author of Among the Bros, a fraternity true crime story. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia, and sound editing is provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.